All right, good morning. Everyone's going to say good morning to you, so we'll just keep doing that, all right? The uh, Happy Father's Day, men. Uh, it's a, a great day for that. We're going to finish up our, uh, our work series here uh, this morning, and so uh, if you're new with us, we are kind of doing a five-part series on the topic of, of work, and we've been kind of working through just various passages. Uh, this morning will be, uh, as was read, Colossians 3. We'll also be in Ephesians chapter 6, and so if you want to kind of just flip back and forth there this morning, those will kind of be the main passages uh, that we'll be working through uh, as well. So um, I'm Chris, one of the pastors here, and uh, like I said, we're finished up our work series. We'll start the Psalms uh, next Sunday, uh, so you can look forward to that too. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Help us, God, to, uh, to think rightly, um, Lord, to have hearts to believe what it is that you want us to believe. Give us uh, wills that are pliable and teachable and moldable to what you want us to do. Uh, God, as we think about work, we think about what we do for much of our life, um, Lord, whether paid or unpaid, there's a lot of work and labor that goes into life. And so this subject is, uh, is super practical for us. It does hit home for us. I pray, God, that you would, um, your Holy Spirit would bring conviction where it's needed, bring hope and encouragement where it's needed, and that, God, we would leave today um, amazed and uh, in awe of the work that you have accomplished for us. In light of that, God would go out and work, God, as unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of you, uh, as I said last week, will spend 90% more of your time at work than you will at church. That's just kind of a fact of life. And so we as pastors uh, would be doing you a disservice uh, if we didn't address if we, if we didn't address what it is you spend most of your time doing. And so if all we talked about was ministry in the church or ministry out of the church, then it would be very easy for you to think uh, that maybe, you know, clocking into your jobs or going to your classes or cleaning the house or changing the diapers or whatever it may be is largely kind of a waste of time while you, while you wait to do the real work of ministry in the church. And so we need to address that, right? We need to talk about that. You may have heard it said that the only things that will last forever are the souls of people and the Word of God. And so you need to be all about the business of those two things if you want your life to matter for God. But... As we address the scriptures and we look at them, if that's the case, then why in the world did Jesus design us to work? Why does so much of our life depend on our work and so much of our time go towards our work? Why didn't Jesus just call us all into full-time ministry, right? When we become a Christian, we just, boom, we pop right in and all we do is work, work inside the church. Does our work really matter to Jesus if it's not done in the church? And that's what we want to look at today and how it does matter to him. Uh, Paul Marshall Christian writer, uh, gives a good description of what he, what he calls the, kind of two colliding worldviews, uh, kind of ways of looking at life that Christians can tend to look at uh, when they look at, at their life and their work. And, uh, and he uses two boats as, an, as illustrations. He uses the Titanic and Noah's Ark. And let me read this quote to you. I think it's, it's pretty good. He said, it is as if, this is like the two worldviews, it's as if the creation were the Titanic and now that we've hit the iceberg of sin, there's nothing left for us to do but get ourselves into lifeboats. The ship is sinking rapidly. God has given up on it. And it's concerned only with the survival of his people. Any efforts we make to salvage God's creation amounts to rearranging the deck chairs. They say our sole task is to get into lifeboats, keep them afloat, pluck drowning victims out of the water, and sail on until we get to heaven where all will be well. 
He goes on to say, but Noah's ark saved not only people, it also preserved God's other creatures as well. The ark looked not to flee, but to return to the land and begin again. Once the flood subsided, everyone and everything was intended to return again to restore the earth. And so, and what we've been talking about here is we've been talking about that you look at the whole story of the Bible, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's like four acts of a play. And that everything is moving towards restoration, um, and that is a new earth. And we're going to talk a lot about that this morning, that how our work will continue forever. And God has designed all of our lives currently now to matter to him, and that includes our work life. And there is a future new earth. We're called to live on and even work on, as we'll see later. This is why Paul would say to us in the book of Romans that we're to take everything that we do, right? All, everything we do with our bodies, not, not just ministry, but everything we do, including our work, okay? And offer it to God as a living sacrifice. In other words, we are to live into every area of life and offer it as worship to Him. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is an act of worship to offer what you do with your body to God, right? It is an act of worship. Uh, the, the message translation of this, I, I, I put this up there too because I thought this was just a good how they said it. He said, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. This is a transliteration, um, a, a kind of expanded translation of it, but here's what he says. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. He says, that's, that's kind of what Paul's getting at. Take everything you have, everything you do with your body, and place it before God as an act of of worship. Paul would say it pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay, so this is what we are supposed to do. So so what does it look like to offer to God our going-to-work life? What does it look like to do your work to the glory of God? Right? We, we, we've heard that before. If you've been in church a while, you hear it like, do, do your work for the glory of God, but, but what does that look like? How do we work on God's current earth right now and what he has for us doing in anticipation of the new earth that he will make? This morning we're going to talk about how our work matters to Jesus, and we're going to look at uh, what it looks like to worship and glorify him in our everyday work. We've already looked at how, how our work matters for, for, our, for us and how God designed us to work. We've looked at how it matters for others, how we can benefit the lives of others through our work, and today how it matters for Jesus. And again, there, is many, there are many texts that deal with this, but our two we're going to look at is Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6. And I think the parallels there uh, in that passage are very close to what, our culture of that of a, a boss and employee or a teacher and student relationship. And so we're going to look at it from that perspective. You'll see the two passages here. So Colossians 3 was read earlier. Whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance Okay, as your reward, you're serving the Lord Christ. And then over in Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, it says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So these are parallel passages. We're going we're gonna to be pulling from those two passages as we look. So here's what we're going to look at. How does our work matter to Jesus? How do we do it to the glory of God? Now, I'm going to give you three, three points, and then every one of those is going to have a little sub-point underneath them of what that practically look, looks like. I am hope to get really practical with you today. So uh, we need to do our work with honesty, do our work with humility, and do our work with hope. Okay, those are our three kind of points we'll look at. Do it with honesty, 
Do it with humility and do it with hope. Number one, work with honesty. The, the passage there in Ephesians 6 speaks of working with a sincere heart. Um, sincere, uh, Paul's writing from the city of Rome. Uh, if you know, uh, kind of the, these are called the, the prison epistles. He's in Rome at the time. He's arrested, and he's writing from there. And in Rome, they spoke Latin. And the, the Latin word for, uh, for word sincere, you may have heard this before, is actually comes from two words. Sincere, the first part, S-I-N, sin. The word means uh, without. And then Saris, the last part, means wax. It's kind of interesting, right? Sincere means to be without wax. You're like, what in the world does that even mean? Like, why is that? Why is that? What is, where, where do we get that from? It's interesting. It, the, the word began to be used in Rome when, when the culture began to develop. They started using, building sculptures and making this artistic work. Um, and so the, the, the sculptures became very popular. When a sculpture had a flaw in it, artists would, would fill the chip or the cracks with a, a colored wax to kind of match the sculpture so that you didn't really see you know, the flaws that were in it. Um, wax was said to serve as kind of a cover-up or masking imperfections on what was most likely uh, cheap kind of pottery. An arguably perfect or quality piece of work was therefore called without wax, right? It was sincere. It was, it was right. Uh, pieces of pottery were even stamped with the phrase without wax as proof of authenticity, right? This one's without wax. This one's sincere. It's real. So you see where that word sincere kind of comes from. And so when Jesus commands us to work with a sincere heart, it's a, this heart without wax, that means we are to be honest. We are to have integrity in our work. Practically, and this one, we get some of the practical parts, uh, we need to be ethical, engaged, and excellent in our work, okay? Be ethical. It's pretty obvious, but this means do honest work. Don't do dishonest work, right? We're to examine the scriptures and make sure that whatever field that we're working in is one that is serving the common good, benefiting the lives of others, and not taking advantage of people. And listen, every morally good task has dignity to it, whether it's, whether it's labor sweeping floors or waiting tables or running a company. And this also means that we're not to steal from our employer, right? This is all part of what it means to be sincere, to be ethical. Well, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, right, is thou shalt not steal, okay? Don't steal. And now, you may not think of it this way, but I want to make sure you do understand it this way. Stealing is not just a sin of commission, okay? That's how we usually think about it when I say commission, meaning something we take that's not ours, right? It's an action. It's also a sin of omission, meaning where we neglect to fulfill the work that we said we would do. You may not think of stealing that way, but think about that when you go to work. Are you stealing from your company, but not working hard at the hours that you just clocked into work, right? That, that's all part of that passage. That's all part of what that means to not steal. It's also a sin of omission. This also means if you're on the clock and your boss tells you to get to work, okay, and you say to them, you know what, but Jesus wants me to do a Bible study right now, you know, with my coworkers, and I need to obey God rather than men. You need to repent of stealing from your boss, and you need to repent of taking verses out of context, all right? You need to realize that Jesus, just as much as God has called you to be ethical in the hours in which you work, he's also called you to talk about Jesus. Yes, when you have that time and you want to have that opportunity, great. But God has called you to be all in when it comes to the work that you've been called to do. Dorothy Sayer, in her essay, Why Work? She said the following. She said, let the church remember this, that every worker is called to serve God in his professional trade, not outside of it. The apostles complained rightly when they said, this is speaking of Acts 6, that it was not meant that they should leave the word of God and serve tables. 
Their vocation was to preach the word. But the person whose vocation is to prepare the meals beautifully might with equal justice protest, it's not meant for us to leave the service of our tables to preach the word. Right? This is what God has called me to do. This is, this is what I'm, God has given me to do, my task. I need to do it and do it with all my heart. This is what, again, our second part here, be engaged. Be engaged. Not just ethical, but be engaged. Um, this is, again, continue with the sincere, without wax kind of idea. We need to be fully engaged in whatever work God has given us to do. The passage in Ephesians speaks of working from the heart. And Colossians, interestingly enough, says, Lord, to work out of your soul is the original language. So work out of your heart, work out of your soul. And so this is why both passages, you've, if you heard them read earlier, are going to talk about working for Jesus, not for people. Right? This should make every minute of every day of your work one where you are all in, doing your best job with all of your soul, not just doing the minimum work required to avoid penalty. Okay, um, You're to be fully engaged, whether someone is watching you or not, because as Paul put it in Colossians, you are literally serving the Lord, or we could put it this way, you're literally working for Jesus. Have you ever considered that? You go to work, you're working for Jesus. If you're at home, you're working for Jesus, whatever it is. You know, every organization kind of has like a flow chart of authority, typically. Someone's, someone's at the top, you know, the chart. Uh, and you, you kind of work for them, right? You, they, you work for them. But as a Christian, there, there's another version of that chart, another version that has Jesus at the top of that flow chart, right? Who works, who rules over all. So look at the chain of command at work and realize that your boss's boss is always named Jesus, right? Your boss's boss is always named Jesus. You work for him. So if you have a boss that you work for, you don't really like, or it's tough, or it's difficult, Okay, you can be all in, you can be fully engaged, because you know why? Because you're working for your boss's boss, right? He may sign the paycheck, but you work for Jesus, okay? I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but that's what these passages are going to tell us. That's who, that's who you're working for. That's why you can be all in and fully engaged in something and work for someone maybe that you're disgruntled with or not getting along with or it makes it really hard on you, but you can be all in. You can be all in. There's a story of a janitor. He was a Christian uh, who was uh, cleaning toilets in an office complex, and he was training new guys, kind of walking them around, you know, showing them how to do this. And he was showing them how to, to scrub the toilet bowl, and he was showing them how to clean the floor, you know, around the front. And then he, and then he showed them how to go behind the back and clean the backside of the toilet. The new guy asked him, why, why are you wasting time cleaning something in the back of the toilet that no one's ever going to see? He said, quote, because I work for Jesus, and he sees that too. Right? That's kind of the idea. I mean, this is, this, this is why we address this subject. It radically changes how you work. You're like, I'm working for Jesus, okay? I'm going to clean the backside of the toilet because he sees that too. I'm going to do it, be fully engaged, fully in. Uh, lastly, under this point here, being sincere, being honest, is the idea of being excellent. Okay, these all go together. The implication of being sincere at work means we do our work with, with excellence, Colossians speaks of rendering service with a good will. And the language there, the rendering service, is the language of a, a bondservant. Paul would say in Colossians 4.1 that this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. That's how they should see us. And whatever we're doing, they should see us as servants of Christ. And the word servant, interestingly enough, is actually the word for, okay, under rower. Let me get to it. Under rower, R-O-W-E-R. And that was, the servant there was the lowest galley of slaves in a three-tiered, kind of the bottom tier of a three-tiered ship, right? They'd be rowing on the top, middle, and bottom. The one at the bottom, 
Okay? It was very important. Obviously, they were precise in what they were doing. They were also very rigorous. It was tough. It was difficult. Um, these guys, a lot of them would die across whatever ship they were going on because of the, the amount of work and labor they were having to put in at the very bottom of the ship. And Paul goes, that's you and me at work. We're, we're, we're bottom, bottom tier rowers, okay? We're at the very bottom. We're putting in all the work on this one. We're the under rowers. And so a servant of Jesus is a person who is totally under divine authority, even at their work. In every thought, every breath, every effort, we're under the authority and mastery of God himself. And so our response to God, whatever it is he calls us to do, we is, yes, Lord, okay, I'll do that, right? It's, uh, I'll do it with excellence to whatever he asks. If he wants us to dig ditches, we'll ask how deep, right? If he wants us to climb mountains, we'll ask how high. If he wants us to run to Canada, we'll ask how fast, and then maybe ask why. Um, no offense to you Canadians out there today, so I just wouldn't want to go to Canada. All right, so this all implies that we are working our best every single day. Now, this also applies to students, okay? It also applies to athletics. It applies to the classroom, right? I'm doing whatever I've got God, God has me doing. I'm doing it with excellence. I'm doing it with excellence. Uh, we don't do just enough to get by. Um, if you worked at the park at all uh, last week, it was one thing you never said to Dave, and it was this. I think this is good enough. You just never said that to Dave. Because they'd come back around and be like, no, it's not good enough. You've got to do it right, you know. So it's like he always was pushing us. And if you guys are around Dave, you, you, you know this, right? It's not, never, just never say it's good enough. Uh, Dorothy Sayer, again in her, her essay on work, she said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this. At the very first demand that Jesus makes upon him, is that he should make good tables. He should make good tables. Go make good tables for him. Like, this is what God has called you to do, so go make it, do it well. You say, what if, um, what if, I, what, what if you don't know how to do your job well, right? What do you do? And you don't understand exactly what you're supposed to do. Well, this, I mean, I'm just trying to be real practical today, right? So go to your employer and simply say, you know what? I don't understand fully what I'm supposed to do. Can you give me clarity, right? If you can't do the job, go to your boss and ask for training. If you really can't do your job, then go to your boss and say, you know what? This is not working out for me. I don't think I'm quite, quite gifted to do this. I'm going to work for other, look for other work. I mean, think about this. If we actually went to our employers and we said, and we just went to them randomly and said, hey, how can I do a better job? I love Jesus. He wants me to do the best job possible. Can you help me out here? Well, how can I do the best job, right? And do that before, by the way, way before your performance review is due. <laughs> okay, don't do it then. Two things will happen, right? Your employee will be grateful, number one. Number two, they may die of a heart attack because they're like, who asked this question? <laughs> like, you, you're asking me how to do it better? All right, number two, work with humility. So we started working with honesty. Now we're working with humility. Uh, Colossians and Ephesians Again, we'll, we learn that we're not to do our work for or to man, but rather do it to or for Jesus. You say, what does that look like? Well, it looks like there's two kind of things we need to, to look out for. Number one, we need to guard ourselves uh, from idolizing our work, and we also need to make sure that we're, we're being grateful for the work that God has given to us. Okay, So number one would be a here, be guarded. Be guarded in your work. This is important, and we've addressed this a little bit in this series, but I just kind of want to bring it back around again. We need to be careful. All right, we, build, we live in a, a utilitarian culture that basically puts value. What that means is our culture puts value in only what we can do, right? What, we, what, we, what actions we can complete. We are valuable in as much as we can do. 
And, and we have to be careful that we don't find our identity, right, in the work that we do. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, the Tower of Babel, you know, they're building this tower up, and here's what they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make, here it is, a name for ourselves. So all the way back in Genesis 11, we find humanity trying to build a life, build an identity apart from God, and specifically, because you have to find it somewhere, find it in their work. If you're not going to find it in God, you're going to find it in the work that you do. And so humanity decided they didn't need God, right? They can build an identity on their own, make a name for themselves. And as you, if you've read, you'll know that that backfired on them. It also backfired on the rest of humanity ever since then. Because when you take work, which is a good thing, we've, we've talked about that just in the very beginning, work is good, okay, and elevate it to a point of the being ultimate, all right, it will destroy you and it will also work through you to destroy others around you. Just look at how someone who, maybe a boss who tries to find their identity in their work, right, how they treat those who, who don't help them do so, right? If the workplace becomes stressful, demeaning, reactive, right? It becomes a very difficult environment because this whole identity is wrapped up in, in this work and making a name for themselves in that work. So listen, we don't make a name for ourselves through what we do. We make a name for ourselves through what has been done for us. We'll come back to that at the end, beginning, at the end because that's what Jesus did for us. That's where we find our identity, what's been accomplished for us, not in what we do. The Bible, the gospel is not about us, and what we need to do for God, it's about Jesus and what he came to do for us, right? That's how we, we view that. That's why Isaiah 56, verse 5, uh, God says, I'll give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's, that's where you want to find your name. That's where you want to find your identity, right? In that. Um, so how do you know? Maybe a question you may ask yourself, like, how, so how do I know if I'm making an idol out of work? That's kind of, I want to work hard, I want to do it with excellence, right? You talked about being engaged fully, and yet I don't want to overdo it to the point where it becomes my identity. How, how do I find out if I'm doing that or not? Well, you can begin to ask yourself some questions. You can also ask other brothers and sisters around you. They may be able to give you a little insight on that. But you may ask yourself, am I neglecting God-given responsibilities, right, for my own soul, uh, for the care of my family, right, the care of the, 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 the church, because I'm, I'm working too much, right? I'm so much involved, it's actually consuming my entire life. Has work taken over your life? That may be a good, good indication that it's kind of risen to the point of where you're trying to get out of work what it was never designed to be. This is why the Bible, the, when it commands us to work, you know, work six days and rest, right? There's a command to rest. God did that so that we would take some time off. God wove that rhythm into the world at creation. God didn't need to rest after making creation in six days. He, it was put into that rhythm. He doesn't need to sleep. Um, so God designed us in such a way to work, but also to rest. And if we aren't resting, it's a good indication that we're trying to get out of work again, what God never intended us to get out of work. I love how uh, John Viper put it, speaking about rest and how God designed us that way. He said, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we're in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. <laughs> How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become limp as a newborn baby every day. Right? It's like God's cure to the world. Like, here, go to bed. Right? That's why you read, you read the Psalms and you read this place. Like, God doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't slumber or sleep. Right? Psalm 121. 
And so sleep is like that broken record that comes around with the same message every day, right? Man is not sovereign, man is not sovereign, man is not sovereign. Your work's not indispensable, your work's not indispensable, your work's not indispensable. <laughs> Go to sleep. I mean, this is all part of that rhythm that God's trying to wake us up to. Don't let that lesson be lost on you. God is not uh, nearly as impressed with our late nights and our early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all our cares and anxieties on him and goes to bed, right? So guard against making your work an idol. Be humble enough to admit it. If you're working too much, right, talk to your family about it. Repent of that. See, one of the pastors, we can help you with that, right? But you've got to be careful. You've got to guard against that. So as we talk about doing with excellence and being engaged and ethical and all that, we've got to also guard against this. Secondly, we have to be grateful. If we're going to do our work with humility, then we must be grateful for our work. <laughs> this is going to be tough, all right? Um, we live in a culture that loves to complain, especially about their work, right? <laughs> um, you go to work one day and just try to record how many complaints you hear. If you work in HR, it's pretty much your job, right? <laughs> You're like, that's all I get all day, Chris, It's just complaints, right? Um, but God calls us to be grateful and to not complain about our work. Philippians 2, 14 through 15, do all things, including your work, without grumbling or disputing. You may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do you see all the rest of that that follows after don't complain? He's like, man, if you do that, you're going to be like a beacon of light. Because <laughs> people are going to be like, why aren't you complaining with us? Because everyone complains about their work, right? First uh, Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, including our jobs. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you're looking around, you're going like, man, I just can't discern God's will for my life. I don't know what it is. Here's, here's, here he clearly lays it out for us. Give thanks. Be, be, uh, have gratitude, right, in all circumstances. Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always and for everything, including, again, our work, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, word or deed, do everything, again, including your work, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Listen, we should expect, and we've, you know, we looked at this, and Pastor Scott went through Ecclesiastes and talked about this. We should expect to be regularly frustrated with our work, okay? It's, we, the fall is very real, okay? It's not always going to be like, you know, I don't know, running through the fields and picking daisies and with butterflies and stuff around you. I don't know. Whatever, you've, whatever deems happiness to you, I don't know. But it's not all like that, right? It is difficult at times. It makes sense. The fall is real, but we need to be grateful for what God has given to us. Okay? Grateful. It doesn't mean, you know, practically, does that mean I'll never change my job? Like I never look for a new one? It doesn't mean that. But it does mean you'd be grateful for what you have in front of you right now. Realize that the talents that you have, right? Um, you, you, you work with talents you did not earn. They were given to you by God. You, you went through doors of opportunity that you did not produce. You just, they just opened for you. And therefore, everything you have, including your job, is a matter of grace. And so if you're struggling... Okay, practically here, take some time each morning before you go to work to, as, as Romans 12 said, present yourself to God. Okay, God, here it is. I'm, I'm a living sacrifice. I want to run off the altar. I don't want to go to work. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be grateful. Okay, I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to, be, I'm going to thank him for the job. Say thank you for the opportunity to, to, to go to work, right? Thank you for the ability to do that. And then thank him for the ability and opportunity and privilege uh, to work and tell him, hey, I'm working for you today. I'm working for you. You're my boss today. Number three, work with hope. Last one. Work with hope. Uh, back in Colossians 3, 
Paul tells us to work knowing that we will receive the inheritance. Not an inheritance, but the, there's, there's something very specific he's talking about. And what he's talking about there, as the Bible kind of unfolds, is that he's saying, he's saying that uh, work in such a way, in such a way of, of, of understanding, you will receive what the Bible will call a new earth. Notice I didn't say heaven, I called it a new earth. Because our eternal existence as followers of Christ is one on a new earth like this one, minus the sin. That's what heaven is, okay? That's how heaven is described in Revelation 21 and 22. Second uh, Peter 3. 3, uh, 3.13 says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21.1, I saw a, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. So contrary to popular opinion in our culture, heaven is not a ghostly, like ethereal existence where we float around on clouds and rock out to harps all day. Okay, that's not, I don't know if you can rock out to a harp, but um, maybe you can. Um, but this makes the world, okay, so, so this changes how we view our world, right? This, is, uh, this makes the world not a temporary theater for our individual salvation stories. Remember back at the beginning, we talked about the lifeboat thing? If I, you know, it's, it's all it is, is picking people out of the water. Um, it's more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. So according to Scripture, this world that we live in now is a forerunner of the new earth, which will be purified and restored and enhanced. So when we look at the entire story of the Bible, this makes sense, right? This is perfect symmetry all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We have the, the past with the original earth, with humans created from the earth. Remember, God got, went to work and he dusted the ground, created mankind. We have the present earth after Genesis 3. With a, it's a fallen earth where, where mankind dies and returns to the earth, right? Back to dust you shall return. And we have a future uh, with mankind resurrected from the earth to live on a new earth, right? That's kind of the theme and the, kind of the role of the whole Bible. So we have paradise lost in Genesis. We have paradise regained in Revelation. We have Redeemer promised in Genesis. We have Redeemer returning in Revelation, right? That's kind of how the Bible kind of concludes. So we're going to work with this hope in mind, okay? Keep that, that, that future in mind, okay? What does that look like? Well, first of all, it means we need to be patient right now. We need to be patient. James 5 7 and 8 says, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late, late rains. You also be patient, wait, okay, wait for him to come. A large part of our life is one of being patient. We don't usually like that, but it is. So this means when we say, What does that mean for work? When it comes to our work, this means some practical things. It means that I'm willing to wait, okay, I'm going to specifically speak to the younger generation here. Um, I'm specifically willing to, to wait for the, maybe the best job or the best employer or the best situation for nothing on this earth will compare to what I get to do on the new earth. Work will, will continue forever. I don't know if you knew that or not, by the way. It's going to keep going, okay? But sin will no longer be there. Sin will be gone. It will be removed. So Revelation 22, verse 3 says there's no longer any curse. The curse is, is speaking back to Genesis 3. The curse on the ground. Remember the thorns and thistles you'll grow. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservant shall serve him. So listen, if, if death, okay, let's just take our worldview for a second. If death is the end, okay, and all we're going to do is push up daisies, right? Six feet under, we're going to be worm food, and that's it. That's all there is. Uh, we have reason to fear that we're wasting our chances at finding the best work possible. We, we, we better just keep jumping from job to job, hoping to find that something that makes life 
uh, worth living because we only go around once. We should be self-indulgent then, consumeristic, materialistic, step on whoever we got to step on to get to the top because you only go around once, right? We got to find that. We got to find it in the work. But if there is a new earth coming, then that means we can sacrifice now. We can love our coworkers. We can grind away at jobs that maybe we don't totally enjoy at times because there is coming a time where we will fully enjoy our work all day, every day. We will look forward to it. And even learn, think about this, even learn all kinds of new areas of work because you've got an eternity to train for them, right? So you can, you can do whatever area of work you want to do, right? Um, I remember uh, uh, the, uh, talking to, uh, to Calvin. Calvin was uh, <clears throat> my youngest son, and he, uh, he always, since he was little, he always talked about two things. He wants to build buildings, and he wants to be a pastor. And I said, well, you can't quite do both of those. Um, and I said, uh, I said, so what, won't you just work on being, you know, be a pastor. Be a pastor now, and then you get to New Earth, you can build buildings. Because there's all kinds of, there's a whole new city coming, he says. So I mean, you can build then, right? So kind of just giving that comparison. And so, uh, so, so passion in the Bible seem to indicate that there are jobs in management, government, agriculture, arts, ministry, engineering, all these different things. So just as we contribute to society today with work and education and technology and arts and service, so we will do in a society on a new earth. We may rebuild cities, build homes, and all that good stuff. Uh, listen, Amos, Amos chapter 9, verse 14, they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. Speaking of the future, Isaiah 61, 4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins, they will rise, raise up the former devastations, they will repair the ruined cities. Isaiah 65, 21, they will build houses and inhabit them. There will also be, on the new earth, there will be farming on the new earth, just in case some of you can't get enough of it, right, here in Indiana. And while, uh, while on this earth, right, farmers are plagued with problems of floods, for example, like we've had the last couple of days, or droughts, and then there's weeds and disease and pests, they won't have that problem, right? They don't have to battle that on a new earth. There's, there won't be any need for crop insurance, okay? You don't have to have that. Isaiah 30, verse 23 says, He will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread to produce the, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. This is speaking of the future. Isaiah 65, 21, they'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Amos 9, 13, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. That's a interesting, that's a fascinating kind of verse because it says the crops will be so enormous at harvesting that it will take so long to harvest that the one who's, the one who's planting the new crop will overtake the one who's reaping the old one, right? That's how much, how much produce will be produced. There'll be no more famine, no more hunger anymore. That's why it speaks of that in Revelation. So our deepest aspirations in work will come to complete fruition in God's future, okay? God's future, not ours. And in that future, you'll be useful in the lives of others to infinite degrees of joy and satisfaction. You'll perform with all the skill that you can imagine. This allows us not to be ultimately discouraged by the frustrating present reality of our work because we know our work in this life is not the final word, okay? It's not the final word. There's more work to be done. This also uh, moves us to be productive. 1 Corinthians 15 58 says, therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast. Speaking of the resurrection, the future resurrection, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. And so if we can catch a glimpse of that future new earth life of work, then it will actually motivate you to be most productive here. Think about it. Most of our daily work is caring for our Father's world and those who call it home. 
We make things, we fix things, we care for things, we serve others. And what we do here is not a waste. And the skills and abilities we're developing now are not a waste either. All right? It will be used further, it will be used and further developed even in future work that God has for us past this earth onto a new earth. So our time here in our Father's Word is a preparation for an eternity of activity and creativity on a new earth. Now, I say all that, and some may object and say, wait a minute. I thought everything is going to go up in flames, right? God's just going to burn this whole place down, so it doesn't really matter. Like, why, what, what, you know, what difference does it make? And usually this is a passage people go to, 2 Peter 3.10. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You say, well, Chris, that seems pretty clear. But this really comes from a failure to understand the nature of fire and agricultural practices. Fire purifies, refines the land of its impurities, and later to be able to grow new things, right? When I was driving through Iowa, the drive from Minnesota to Iowa, I dropped my kids off up there with the grandparents and then came back, and uh, that drive back, it's not the most exciting of drives, but going through Iowa, there's a lot of fields. There's a whole lot of fields. And I saw, actually, them burning. There was fire, because I was like, oh, man, what's, what's burning around here? And you, cause you smell it coming through the windows. And it was, the farmers were burning parts of their field, um, called controlled burning, right? It's a way of, of preparing their fields to be more fruitful in the future. This is what God is going to do with this earth. He will, he will purify it. He will remove sin and the damage it has caused and purify it in such a way that there is a new earth. And the word new there, new as in the same kind as. And some things will survive the fire. Just will. Listen to Isaiah 60, verse 11. Your gates, this is speaking of the new earth, shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you, speaking to Jesus, the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So here's what we have culture going on in the new earth. Revelation 21, 24 to 26. By its light will the nations walk. Kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Speaking of the, this, the new Jerusalem. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, right? The things are products, artifacts are being brought in, right? Things that are being accomplished. And so it's clear to the new earth there's cultural artifacts, cultural items that will be brought into it. Now, this is part of what Revelation 14 says. And I don't totally know what this verse means, to be honest with you. I'm just going to read it to you. <laughs> but it says, it's a lot of Revelation I read and go like, hey, let me read it to you. Um, Revelation 14, 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. There's something coming along with them. There's meaning, I think it's going back to a parallel here to that 1 Corinthians 15, that their labor is not in vain. There's some sort of, of eternal reward and things or elements that are going on there. That's why Moses prayed in Psalm 90. He said, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish, and the word literally means uh, make permanent uh, the work of our hands. Uh, yes, establish the work of our hands. Make permanent. God, make it last. Make it, make, it, make it have an impact. And so I don't know what all exactly makes it, okay, onto a new earth, but I do know passages in Isaiah and Revelation speak of wood cultivated in Lebanon and ships formed in Tarshish being on a new earth, right? They're there. Um, it won't be starting over, I guess, is the best way to put it, right? If you read Genesis, we start off in a garden. God puts us to work. You go to the very end of the Bible, last couple of chapters, there's a new city called the New Jerusalem on a new earth, and there's these big, huge buildings, and we live there. So clearly things are developed versus undeveloped. So we're not going back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, so this practically means, okay, for us, we think about, all right, so how does my work then matter? How does, how does that matter for eternity? 
I think it, it goes back to a lot of the elements of like how we work and things we've talked about. I think it does mean practically you don't have to have a fish emblem attached to your business to mean something to Jesus, okay? I think you can work in other capacities and have that. If you read Matthew 25, I don't have time to go there this morning, but if you go read that chapter, that's the one where Jesus is talking to people and they're trying to figure out for, um, you know, he's like, where were you when I was hungry and when I was thirsty? You know, you, you, didn't, you didn't come visit me. You didn't do these things. And they're like, what are you talking about? And, and Jesus goes, well, it, what you've done, the least of these you've done to me. In other words, he was saying, you know that you're a Christian because your life is lived out in such a way that you actually care for other people, especially in that context. Jesus is like, when you serve these people, you're serving me. And so I think the, the, the value of that, he talks about, there's eternal value of caring for the hungry, the thirsty, and the sick. And think about our work. It's at our work, typically, that we have the greatest capacity to care for the hungry and the thirsty and the sick. And if by faith we consecrate our work to God and we love Jesus, we work for Jesus, not to earn anything from Jesus, but out of gratitude for what he's done for us, and we love our neighbors and clients and customers, then there's a sense that Jesus will remember that forever. Malachi 3.16 says, A book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. There's, there's something written down. Uh, we know from our study in Hebrews 6.10 that God is not unjust to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. So there's, there's a sense of God keeping record here. Yeah, this is, this is uh, I see the things that you've done. And so if your work as a Christian, I think practically this means if, you're, if our work as a, as a Christian has any role in bringing food to the hungry, if you have any place in the chain that brings water to the thirsty, if our work provides any clothing or shelter to people, if our work has any role in the system that brings health and physical care to the sick, then Jesus counts that, if we're doing it for him, counts that as service to him. So Matthew 25 is telling us, right? That's what we're doing. We're serving him. And he's glorified by that, and he'll remember that. And so so we, did, we are to ask, like Moses said in Psalm 90, God, make permanent the work of my hands. Make it in such a way that I impact the lives of others that makes a difference forever, right? Lastly, be prepared. Working with hope, as we talk about, is not just automatic. Not everyone, not everyone will live on a new earth with Jesus, okay? It's not just how it automatically goes. There is a, a real hell that, is, that exists. And so it all matters, and here's, here's the thing. It doesn't matter how hard you work or how lazy you work or whatever it is. It has nothing to do with that. It all matters what you do with Jesus, your work won't amount to a hill of beans if you don't know and love Jesus. You have to embrace and rely on his work for you, not your work for him. And so the Bible, the gospel, again, is about Jesus and what he came to do for us. It's not about us and what we need to do for him. So I said Corinthians 8 9, which says, for, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, okay, though he was rich, though he had heaven, though he had everything, yet for our sake he became poor. He gave it all up. Read the gospels, right? So, that you may, so you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's called the great exchange, is what Martin Lloyd-Jones called that. He gave up heaven, all of its perfections and beauty and activity, to come here to a place ridden with sin and injustice and unrighteousness called earth. And he walked this earth as a, as a man. He lived, he lived a life not just better than any of us. He lived a life to perfection. He lived a life that we could not possibly dream of living. And then he was rejected by everyone. Go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that. He was rejected by including his own family and friends. Subjected to a gruesome death on a cross where he bled and died. And he drank every last drop of the fury of the wrath of God deserved for us. He took that all into himself so that we could have his righteousness, so we could have a relationship back with God. And so the Gospels tell us of Jesus' work and his finished work. He truly worked with honesty and humility and with hope. 
And Isaiah 53 even speaks of, of Jesus bearing the weight of sin on the cross and says, out of the anguish of his soul, seeing and being satisfied with what he would accomplish. And so he did. He finished his work, right? He finished the work the Father sent him to do to bring us back to God, to solve the, the brokenness between God and man by taking on our sin. And when he said at the cross, he says, it is finished, he completed his work of salvation for us, right? He, he finished it. Tim Keller said in light of that application, he said he is the, speaking of Jesus, he's the only boss who will not drive you into the ground. The only audience that does not need your best performance in order to be satisfied with you. Why is this? Because his work for you is finished. In fact, the very definition of a Christian is someone who not only admires Jesus or emulates Jesus or obeys Jesus, but who rests in the finished work instead of his or her own work. So as we wrap up our series on work, and I said last week, I'll say it again, like you have to be careful not to apply that, you know, well, if I work really hard, then God will, God will love me. If I work really hard, then God will save me. If I work really hard, maybe I'll, be, maybe I'll do enough to balance the scales to get into heaven, right? That's not how it works. Again, it's not about you. <laughs> your salvation, your relationship towards God is not about what you can do for him, because there's no amount of stuff you can do to take away and absolve the sin, right? That's what Jesus came to do. That's why he said it is finished. Have you trusted in his finished work for you? Because if you have and you understand that and you embrace that, then, then you can work out of that. Then you can work with excellence, right? You, you can work with being, being engaged. You can be grateful and, gra- and, and have gratitude for your work, right? You can work with hope and anticipation, knowing that, yes, I have a future new earth I'm going to. I can be patient. I can go without. I can serve and I can give so that, because I, I know I've got a new earth coming, right? That's how the gospel lives out into our life of work. So as a church, we take communion. There's tables in the front, back. There's bread, there's juice. There is, we remember the, the body of Jesus that was broken for us and his blood that was poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. There's nothing magical. This t- table doesn't save you. doesn't make you closer to Jesus by going through the actions, okay? It's a point of us to remember tangibly that it was, Jesus was a real person, he had a real life. He lived a real life. He had a, he had a body that was broken. He had blood that literally poured out for us. And he, he did all of that to sacrifice for me, right? For you. And so if you're a Christian, if you embrace that and you know and love Jesus, you're, able to, you're welcome to come to the tables to take that um, and then able to give your offerings as well. So I'll pray. And then when I'm done praying, uh, we'll be some music playing. And as you're ready, uh, if you're ready, you may go to those tables. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for this series on work, God, you have a lot to say to us about what it means to practically go to work and why that God matters to you. You created us that way. You created us to work. You created us to labor. Um, and Lord, we're, we're not, it's not a, a side part of our life. It's a very central part uh, to what we do in life. And I pray, God, that um, each person here would be encouraged, challenged, convicted, uh, Lord, in, in the areas of, of how they are to work for you. Lord, we thank you. Um, that you did come down and live a life that we could not live, and then you died a death we should have died to save us, to reconcile us back to God, to give us a relationship with God, so that, God, we can live this kind of stuff out by your grace. Thank you for your finished work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.